2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You guys can have a seat. Man, when I was a kid, my, my dad um, went to great lengths to engage in my life. Um, I didn't really realize, realize it at the time, but I had a great dad. I got an amazing, amazing, amazing dad. I know not everybody has a great dad. I genuinely had a great dad. He, he did all the things that like good dads do, like in this category of good dads. Like he was like the, the scout leader. He was the baseball coach. He engaged in all of those things. But then he also kind of did some things he probably shouldn't have done in order to be a good dad. Um, my dad was a police officer. He worked for the Illinois State Police, and most of his career was spent in crime scene. Uh, he was like the head of crime scene for the Illinois State Police. And so, man, he would bring things home that he probably shouldn't bring home just so that I could play with those things, um, like nightsticks and handcuffs. He's like, go at, go for it. I don't care, right? Um, or it was like tasers and whatever. Like it was like at a, at a very young age, like five years old, I learned how to lift a fingerprint. I had like fingerprint brushes and like a whole fingerprint kit and like fingerprint dust, like different types of fingerprint dust. I'd put them on all, every door, every doorknob in the house like fingerprint dust all over. I was lifting fingerprints off of everything. I learned like all these like crazy things he'd bring home. He'd let me play in his car. I could turn on the lights. Sirens were mostly off limits, but you know, every once in a while he'd be like, oh, I don't care. Go for it. Right. He, all the time. And a lot of that, I look back on it. It was like a lot of things he brought home. I was like, probably shouldn't have brought that home. Like, but it was like, he just loved it. As I grew, as I grew older, kind of at the age where kids um, kind of kind of stop hanging out with their parents and start doing things that kids do, like 15, 16, 17, 18. My dad bought a farm, like just a legit, like he just went out and like bought a farm. Like he wanted, he wasn't a farmer. He was a police officer. He didn't know anything about farming. He, but he was like, man, I, I want to have a place where my son can go and just like do things, right? Hunting and fishing, all the things that like kids who grew up in Illinois like love to do. Right, this place where we can just like play. And I didn't like realize it at the time, but like all of these things like, on different stages of life, my dad was like cultivating experiences so that I would do things that I love to do, like genuinely things that I, I loved and delighted in so that he might cultivate a greater relationship with me, so that he might reveal his heart towards me and show me how much he loved me and how much he longed to be with me and who he was and kind of build this character in me. I didn't realize at the time. I thought we were just like playing and having fun. But as I look back now, it's like, man, my dad had this like whole like strategy around how he was pouring into me. And this morning, I want you to see that in the same way, man, God is doing the same thing. He wants to reveal his heart to you. He wants to reveal his heart to you through his word. He carefully inspired the scriptures, preserving them for thousands of years so that we could have a glimpse into his character, his plans, his love for us. However, today, I mean, so many of us are so busy with life. We're distracted by technology. We're on our phones. We're, we're distracted by our desires, our hopes, our dreams. We're, we're pursuing all these things. I, mean, I got to pursue my career. I got to pursue my family. I got to do all these things. Like we don't actually ever get to see just how much he loves us. Like the, the extent of his love for you is what you kind of learn about as you hear me talk on Sunday, which is really, really sad. Like imagine if all I ever experienced from my dad was just hearing somebody else talk about him. How I would not know the depths of his love. 
I would not know the lengths to which he has gone. God's word reveals the depths of his heart towards you and the lengths to which he has gone to demonstrate, to show you his heart. And so this morning, as we kind of look into 2 Timothy 3, 16, just the very first half of that verse, all scripture is breathed out by God. My only goal this morning, my only goal is that you would see, men, why we pursue the word. Why should you pursue the word? Why, why give a rip about it? I want you to be able to answer that question this morning. God has given you this supernatural gift, 66 different books, 40 different authors, written over a period of 1,500 years in all of it, it's unbelievably unique, unbelievably kind of all these different genres of work. We have letters and poems, historical accounts, visions, instructions, love letters, all compiled into one book that we call the Bible, written with these 40 different authors from all different walks of life, kings and shepherds, fishermen and farmers, great warriors, all, all these People from different walks of life, tent makers, creating the story. And it's all one story. It all fits seamlessly together in this unbelievable work. In the core of it, the whole point of it, it's, the, it's, the, it's God's heart being revealed. It's all God's story. Him revealing his heart for you. Everything in this book points us to God's redemptive heart. His plan to redeem you, to restore you, to bring you near to himself because he loves you. This is the story. We are not the hero in this story. There's no place in this work where we are the heroes. We are constantly always the ones in distress. We are the ones in need. We, We are the ones who need saving again, rescuing again and again and again. And God, again and again and again, is providing the rescue, pointing to the story of rescue and redemption, rescue and redemption. He loves you and he wants you to see this. And the kind of the centerpiece of it all is his plan for redemption through his son, Jesus. In every single book, Jesus is represented. In some way, she reform, Jesus is being pointed to in every single book of the Bible again and again and again and again. God says, I'm coming. I'm coming for you. I love you. And I'm going to give my life for you. I will die for you so that I can redeem you. So that you might be, as we read earlier a minute ago, that you might be adopted that you might become sons and daughters, that you might rule and reign, that you might become heirs to the throne. Right? I love you, and I want you near to me. That's this entire book. It's, a, it's his love letter to you, declaring his love for you. And so this morning, we're going to look at how this has been supernaturally given, supernaturally guarded, so that you might be supernaturally loved. And so that's the first thing I want you to see. This book has been supernaturally given. <clears throat> Supernaturally given. I already said um, 66 different books, all these different genres, 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. It's crazy. And yet, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's His Word. He has spoken it. Well, you said, Josh, there's 40 different authors, right? Those authors wrote it. Like, how's it God's Word, right? This, This idea is what we call divine inspiration. Can you guys say divine inspiration? 
Like this half of the room is with me, this half of the room, I'm not sure, okay? Um, I just want to see if we're with me. All right, yet divine inspiration, right? This is, this is what we call divine inspiration, right? This idea that, that God wrote the whole Bible. It's his word. God wrote the Bible through human authors by inspiring them and guiding them to write down his words. This belief as a doctrine is known as divine inspiration. God inspiring human authors to write the Bible by directly communicating with them or by guiding their thoughts and actions. The inspiration ensured that the human authors wrote exactly what God intended them to write without error or mistake. This is exactly his words, exactly how he intended them to write it. He has divinely, supernaturally given it to these authors. While God was the ultimate source of the words, written in the Bible. He used unique personalities, experiences, and writing styles of human authors to convey his heart for the world, his heart for you. The Bible is the result of this divine human partnership and is therefore both fully God's word and fully human in origin. Here's how Peter puts it in 2 Peter 1.20. He says this, he says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men, listen, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God is carrying these authors along. Through his Spirit, he is putting the words in them as they write it out. He is making sure that the things that he wants to be communicated are communicated. In every poem, in every letter, in every historical account, in every revelation, it is God moving through them in a supernatural way. It's been supernaturally given. I love in uh, Revelation, one of the funny things in the book of Revelation, you guys are like, Revelation's not funny, man, it's weird. No, no, there's funny things in there. Okay, here's what's funny about Revelation to me. Right, again and again and again, John is seeing this vision that is freaky. It's crazy. There's like beasts and crazy dragons and these things with all these eyes and nuts, crazy things. Like he sees Jesus like coming in with a sword and a robe dipped in blood. It's like, what is happening? And multiple times, John is kind of caught up in all of this. He's like, ah, and angels are like, hey, bro. Write this down. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, write it down. And like, God will say something, and he's just like, oh. Uh, and the angel's like, dude, you, you need to write that down. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. He's like feverishly like writing and need to be reminded to write because he's like so blown away by what he's seen, right? And this, this is what God has done. He's made sure that the things that needed to be in this work were in this book. It's divinely inspired. And so what is the Bible? The Bible is God's literal words, they're his words, supernaturally given through men revealing his heart. The Bible is literally God's word supernaturally given through men to reveal his heart for you. Okay? That's what the Bible is. And so therefore, it has, listen, it's been supernaturally given. It has a supernatural authority over our lives. We're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks. But here's the reality. All of us in this room, all of us, have scriptures from the Bible that we really, really like. We do. We put them on coffee mugs, T-shirts, posters, hang up in our, in our homes, right? I like these verses. 
They encourage me. They inspire me. They make me feel loved and cared for. They make me believe in, in greater things. They give me hope or whatever it is. Like you, have, you have scriptures that you like and you cling to them. You memorize them or at least you halfway memorize them. Right? This is the reality of America. Like we, we, we have scriptures that we like. And then we have scriptures that, you know, we don't really like. Right? We don't want to talk about those. We don't really want to preach on those. We don't want to hear anybody preach on those. We just kind of kind of sweep them over there, right? Because they either, either A, they weird me out, or actually more common, they disagree with some of my core like values. They disagree with my opinions. They disagree with some of the things that I believe should be true. They disagree with some of the things that have been placed in me by my past experiences, by the world, by my family of origin, right? But by, by the influences in my life, they disagree with me. And so I just don't, I don't like them. And so what we do is we kind of pick and choose. We say, man, I'll follow these over here. I'll be obedient to these, right? But these, not, not so much. That's what I just want. Listen, what I want you to hear this morning is this. You're picking and choosing with the heart of God who has in his heart, in the depths of his heart, redemption, restoration, flourishing for you. That's what he longs for you. He longs for you to flourish to, to be enamored with him, to love him, and to find a life in him. Right? Brett, Brett quoted earlier, his, he, he longs to lay before you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Right? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He wants to produce flourishing and goodness in your life. And we're like, ah, I'll take this, but I don't want this. How do we think that's going to go for us? It's not going to go well. You know it's not going to go well, especially if you have children, okay? Listen to me. Kids do this all the time. Um, listen, people ask me all the time, man, how, how do your kids, I got two boys, um, and, they're, and they're incredibly good eaters, okay? One of them's in the room. I'm, I won't pick on them, okay? Uh, they're incredibly good eaters. They eat what, anything in the world. They'll, they'll eat it. Like, just put it in front of them. They'll eat it, right? And then people ask all the time, how do you get your kids that like, eat so well? There's a secret, but it's not that much of a secret, like, if they don't eat what we put in front of them, they just don't eat. All right, that's how it works. That's how it works. And you say, why would you do that? It's kind of mean. It's not mean. Listen, if you allowed your kid to eat anything they wanted to eat, three square meals a day, how, what would they choose? What would they eat? Hey, oh, too many things. I heard chips, Oreos, chicken nuggets. I, I, so let's just say your child, your child was allowed to eat whatever they want to eat. Some of your kids are. All right, it's a problem. All right, listen. And they just lived on a steady diet of chicken nuggets, ice cream, and Red Bull. Like every day. Like three square meals a day. Yes. You're like, yes. No. Right. Day one would be awesome for them and hell for you. You'd just be like, this is the worst day of my life. All right, chicken nuggets, ice cream, Red Bull. Every single day. All right. Now, give that like a few weeks. Give that a few weeks. How, how are they going to be doing? How are they going to be doing? They're going to be horrible. Horrible is right, right? It is going to begin to break down their body. Like their body is not going to be able to fight off diseases. They're going to be sick. They're going to start getting sick with, with, with colds and flus and all, the, all these diseases because their body can't fight it off. They have no nutrients. It's going to stunt them. They're, going to be, they're not going to grow right. They're not going to develop right. Their brains aren't going to function right. Like genuinely, their brains are going to start shutting down. Like they're not going to be able to think right. And so, as parents, we say, you can't do that. Not because we don't love them. 
We'd say, here it is. Here's a healthy meal for you. And you are going to sit at the table until you eat the proper portion that I have decided is right for you and your body so that you might be healthy and strong. It's not unloving. It's not unkind. It's for their good. And you know it's for their good. But if you don't do that, they're going to choose kind of this immediate gratification and they're going to neglect their future flourishing without even knowing it, without even understanding it. And they're going to do it again and again and again and again and again and again. We know this is true. What we don't know is this. You do the same thing. I do the same thing. Children need a greater authority in their life. But so do you. And so do I. If left to myself, I will choose what is instantly gratifying to me what fits into my desires, what fits into my worldview, what fits into my past experiences, what fits into my values and my opinions, and I will reject the things that will ultimately bring me flourishing. I think all flourishing is found here, but I'm an idiot, and I love you, but so are you. Like, we do the same thing. Just like a child, we thinking that they're brilliant and smart and have all the answers in the world, would live on a steady diet of chicken nuggets, ice cream, and Red Bull. Like, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. We need a greater authority in our lives who says, in a, for, in a loving and kind and tender and merciful way, it is for our flourishing, adopted as sons. We need a loving father who says, I have something better for you. I have something better for you. And so no to this and yes to this. Yes to this and no to that. And there are eternal, compl- uh, there are et- eternal implications for those of us who choose to either love what he loves and reject what he rejects or kick against that. There's eternal implications for us. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 5, 19, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, therefore, whoever, anyone who relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There's eternal implications here. Jesus isn't saying you're not going to get in heaven. He's saying Man, you are gonna, there, there's, there's levels in heaven. There, there are, there's, there's a hierarchy in heaven. And those who choose in this life to be obedient to the call that produces flourishing will flourish for all eternity. And those who say, man, I refuse to love what you love. I I refuse to fully reject what you reject. I refuse to participate in the life that you're calling me to refuse to. There's eternal implications to that. The Bible is the wall in which the waves of the world bash against. And it will not break. It will never break. I'm going to show you that in a minute. It has never broken and it will never break. The question is, do you live your life behind that wall? Do you choose to cling to it with all of your might? Or have you given way to the ways of the world? I believe that for maybe all of us, certainly most of us, there are scriptures that we knowingly, knowingly refuse to obey because they make us uncomfortable. We said, I just don't like that. I don't, I don't really want to follow that. And so where have you knowingly, like knowingly rejected the word of God? What, what have you knowingly said, no, 
I'm just not going to do that. Based on your own desires for sex, your own desires for money or greed or covetousness, or your past wounds, your past hurts, your past experiences, where has it caused you to say, no, it's not, that's not the right way. I know a better way. I know what's going to actually make me happy. I know what's actually going to fulfill me. Where have you knowingly rejected the word of God? Friends, God has, a super, has supernaturally given you a picture, a glimpse into his heart. And he loves you. And he, has, he invites you to experience true human flourishing. And there are eternal implications for those who love what he loves and rejects what he rejects. He has supernaturally given us this word. But not only has he supernaturally given us this authoritative word, he supernaturally guarded it. I said it's the wall the world bashes against, and it will not be moved. It's been supernaturally guarded. This is the second thing that I want you to see this morning. It's been supernaturally given, but it's also supernaturally guarded. Now, here's what I want to do. I'm going to nerd out on you for a little bit, okay? Is that okay? I, in the last gathering, um, you can tell how people's brains work. Like some people who are like, yes, I love this. And some people are like, this has now gotten weird, right? And so I was, we're just going to get, we're gonna get a, little, a little nerdy. And I want to explain, I mean, where does this all come from? Like, where does the Bible come from? Okay, the, the French philosopher Voltaire said, I mean, in 100 years, in 100 years, the Bible will be obsolete, no one's going to want it. No one's going to need it. It's going to be like a dusty old book. And because we've, we've evolved and advanced so much in our understanding of the world and, and humanity and science and all of these things, we're just not gonna, it's going to be like useless to us. Well, that was over 200 years ago. And it's still the number one book sold in the world. He could not have been more wrong. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says in Matthew 5.19, Sorry, 518, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. It has not been moved, and it will not be moved. It is not going anywhere. The, law, the, 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 the word of God is the wall that the world is going to bash against, and it's the only thing that will never be moved. It will not. Uh, the great theologian Dan Brown uh, put it this way. Just kidding, Dan Brown's not a theologian. Uh, he, he wrote the Da Vinci Code. He's a moron. Um, <clears throat> he said this. He said, the Bible has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of this book. Now, hang on a second. I want to read that again. Because I think that this is the primary alternate review. Or, or sorry, alternate view, okay? Uh, over here, we say, I mean, this is the word of God's divinely inspired, supernaturally given, supernaturally protected. And then a lot of other people live in this category. And they would agree with this. They would say, the Bible has evolved. It's changed through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. Okay. Meaning, what that means is, man, all we have, there are no originals. We don't have the original letters. We don't have the original writings, right? So all we have are copies of copies, translations of translations. And so therefore, we cannot know what was actually written. We know that people have changed this over time to meet their own needs, right? The rulers of the world have got their hands in this and they've tweaked it and changed it. And we know it's corrupted. We know it can't be trusted, right? That's why there's so many different translations. That's why there's so many different versions, right? And it's just all jacked up. 
Now, friends, listen to me. That's a, that's a big view. A lot of people hold that view. And the only way you can hold that view, the only way, is to know nothing about the Bible. I, I know that sounds harsh, but it's actually really, really, really true. It's really simple. To do no research, to do no work, and just be like, well, Dan Brown said it, so I guess that's true. Like, that's the only way you can actually hold that view. This word has been supernaturally protected, and it does not take a rocket scientist to actually see that, to figure that out. It's so plain if you just give it a little bit of time. And so here's what I want to show you this this morning. Everything I'm about to give you, as we kind of nerd out over this, comes from Dr. Dan Wallace. Dan Wallace, um, he's a seminary professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's a New Testament professor. He's kind of like the guru of ancient uh, manuscripts, uh, New Testament manuscripts. He's the guy who's trying to compile all of the manuscripts in the world. There's like 20-some thousand manuscripts. He wants to digitize all of them. And get them in a computer so that, like, in the future, AI can just be like, like, break it down in, like, a nanosecond, right? And give us, like, here's the, here's the most accurate translation. Here's the best version of that. Tra- like, and, and they're, like, unpack all 20-some thousand manuscripts and just, like, in, a, in an instant, right? He's trying, to, he's trying to compile them all. He's brilliant. If you want to go down the rabbit hole on this, just YouTube, Dr. Dan Brown. Um, he's got a bunch of videos on YouTube. He's brilliant, and it's really, really, really good. Here's the first question. How was it compiled? Right, we know the Old Testament, um, how it was compiled, right? Um, if you guys know anything about the Dead Sea Scrolls or any of that, right? We, there were these scrolls that were meticulously copied, again and again and again for thousands of years so that in every synagogue and every temple, there would be a copy of these books, right? And in scroll form, okay? Um, and so the, the Old Testament's not, uh, it's, not um, it's not very uh, controversial, right? We, we look at it and we say, and we know this, right? Even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? There's so many like, there's so many places where like the, the, the writer is writing in a scroll, is writing one of the books and all of a sudden it's stopped and then like put away, and then he's writing again, and he gets to a certain point, it stops, and people are like, what's going on there? He made a mistake. The, the writer makes a mistake. They stop, put the whole thing away, and start all over again, right? They were so meticulously copied, right? All, of, all, all kind of scholars of ancient Israel are like, oh yeah, the, this is lock solid, right? The Old Testament's easy. The New Testament has been open to scrutiny. We're like, man, where does this come from? How, how do we know? Like, how, how did we arrive at these books in our New Testament? Like, where, where did that come from? And we know that, man, at the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, right, the churches in the known world sent representatives to Nicaea, and they brought with them the letters, like original works from the apostles and other church leaders brought to the table and they said, okay, what goes into what we're going to call the canon of Scripture? What are we going to say? This is authoritative. Everything else is good. Maybe it's bad, but this, this is what's legit. Okay, and they asked three questions. First question is, was it written by an apostle? And what they meant by apostle was somebody who actually knew Jesus, walked with Jesus, was taught by Jesus. Was it written by an apostle? If no, that doesn't mean it's bad. It's just going to go in this pile over here. It's not going to get in, Okay. Um, so maybe like a, a letter from Apollos or something like that. Maybe like, no, nah, we're just going to put that over there, okay? Um, and the second question, does it reflect the teachings of Jesus, okay? It, it, sometimes an apostle might ha- be addressing a specific issue over here, and it's questionable whether or not that has anything to do with what, what Jesus would teach. And they're like, well, that's not bad, but we're just going to put that over here and this pile over here. Third question, do we all agree on this? 
Do we all agree that this was written by an apostle? Do we all agree that this is reflecting the teachings of Jesus? Right? And what they knew was that there were certain letters that were, that were claimed to have been written by an apostle, but they actually weren't. Um, like uh, Paul's letter to the Laodiceans, right? Not in your Bible. Because the church knew who wrote the letter, and it wasn't Paul. Paul's name's on it, but they knew who wrote it. And they're like, that's not Paul. We actually kicked him out of the church because he put Paul's name on it, and, this wasn't, and it wasn't Paul. Um, and so they took that, and they, they set it over here, right? And we still have the letter. Like we, we, it still exists. Third Corinthians, we have it. It's not in your Bible because it wasn't written by Paul. But we have it. A, church, a letter written to the church in Corinth, right? All these letters. And so they, they come up with this kind of final thing, and that is what you have in your Bible, your New Testament. And they, the scribes meticulously, carefully copied this again and again and again to give it to all the churches in the known world and said, this, this is canon. And it's kind of the first ever like real book codexed into pages that you can flip. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And then along comes, a, you know, a thousand years later, along comes a guy by the name of Gutenberg, right? Who, for the sake of printing the Bible, invented the printing press, like this invention that transformed the history of the world, right, was all just so he could print the Bible. He printed, it is estimated, 180 copies of the Bible, and 50 are still in existence to today. But before that, before that moment, every single copy was copied by hand. It's copied by hand. Scribes would meticulously and carefully in Greek and in Latin uh, and Coptic and other, and other, and other uh, languages that would carefully copy um, the words on every single page. So the question comes then, how do we know it's never been changed? How do we know that somebody hasn't gotten their hands on this, right? We know that men, corrupt people would love to like tweak these words and say, this is the authority of God. This is God's word, so do what I say, right? How do we know that hasn't happened, right? In fact, a lot of people would say, that has for sure happened. How do we know it hasn't happened? Well, the NIV, which is the New International Version, <coughs> sorry, is the most popular book ever sold. Okay? More copies of the NIV have been sold than any other book, right? The Bible, in, in all of its translations, is by far the most popular book ever sold. But the NIV is the most popular translation of the Bible that's ever been given. Now, let me ask you a question. Has it ever changed? The NIV, has it ever changed? What do you think? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's changed. Every solid, reputable translation has changed. Um, my Bible, we use the ESV, the English Standard Version here at Flourishing Grace. Uh, my Bible is a 2006 or 2007 edition of that. Um, and the, your Bible, the blue ones, are, are like, I don't know, 2000, I don't know what they are. The, it's the newer one. It's a new one. This is an old translation. And some of the words in this are different than the words in your blue Bible. Both ESV, different words. So what? How's it possible? Wait, hang on, hang on. I thought this was like God's word. You can't like tweak it. You can't change it. What are you doing? How, how is this possible? What's going on here? Here's what's happening, okay? All of the time, constantly, researchers and archaeologists are finding more manuscripts. There are over 5,500 Greek manuscripts, okay? There's over 20,000 handwritten manuscripts that we have of this ancient work, if you stacked them up, they would be taller than four and a half empire state buildings. 
We have an enormous number of manuscripts that we're constantly keep finding. Other Greek works, like other average Greek works. So you think of like Homer's Odyssey or the Iliad. Or you think of Xenophon's Hellenica. Xenophon was this great warrior, wrote this work. Um, and nobody questions it. Nobody questions Homer, Of course Homer wrote the Odyssey. Of course Xenophon wrote the Hellenica. The number of manuscripts we have, if you stack them all up of those works, the average Greek work would be like four feet tall. We have so many New Testament manuscripts. It's mind-boggling. And so as we develop new manuscripts, as we find new manuscripts, these manuscripts predate, this is the other thing too, they predate the Council of Nicaea. We're talking about manuscripts that go back to 150 AD. Within a few years of the death of the author, John, that's their oldest manuscript, is from John's Gospel. It's just a few years after his death, we have a manuscript. Xenophon Telenica, the earliest known manuscript that we have, comes 1,700 years after his death, and no one questions it. No one's like, oh, that, that's not, he didn't write that. No, we're like, it's like, of course he wrote that. Of course, of course he wrote it. But John's, did John write the gospel? I don't know if he wrote it. I don't know. It comes a few years after his death, and we have thousands of manuscripts of the gospel of John, thousands upon thousands of them. So our Bibles, as we find new manuscripts and as we find even older manuscripts, we look at the oldest ones, we, look at, we can compare them all. But now that we're digitizing them, we can compare them all. We can say, man, what is the most accurate, the most common way this was written? And our Bibles are not getting changed to away from the original. They're actually getting closer and closer and closer and closer to the original text. As time goes on, and as research advances, Bibles are being changed because they're getting closer to the original all of the time. Now, last thing in this, and then we'll be done nerding out, okay? One more thing, one more nerdy thing, okay? All of these manuscripts, written over thousands of years, okay? So many different variants. So, so many things that are different in them, Okay? Um, like thousands and thousands and thousands of differences, okay? And you say, man, what the heck? How can there be so many different things? If they're, if they're, if we've all played the telephone game, right? If, if I whisper something into Vinny's ear, by the time it gets to the back of the room, it's going to be completely different than whatever I said, okay? And so when we begin to look at these manuscripts, and we see all these different variants, 90, over 99% of the variants are simple grammar and spelling, in the Greek, there are over 2,000 different ways to say John loves Mary, okay? So if one manuscript says John loves Mary this way and another manuscript says John loves Mary this way, they would say, that's a variant. That's a, that counts as a variant. Over 99% of them are spelling and grammar and punctuation. It's all that kind of stuff. Now, the question is, how many variants change the doctrines of the church? How many of the variants involve doctrinal changes? Any guesses? Zero. Zero. We have over 20,000 manuscripts written over thousands and thousands of years by hand. And not one, not one, not one doctrinal difference in any of them. Not one. I can't whisper a, 
a half a sentence of Vinny's ear and get it to the back of the room. How is that possible? How is it possible? The answer is it's not possible unless it's been supernaturally guarded. And I'm, I'm going to make the guess, it is supernaturally guarded. It's been supernaturally given to you and supernaturally guarded by God for you. So why is that? Because you, my friends, are supernaturally loved. You're supernaturally loved. That's the last thing I want you to see. This work is a gift from God because you are supernaturally loved. He has supernaturally given it. He supernaturally guarded it because he supernaturally loves you. He supernaturally loves you. This is God's heart. It has been breathed out by him so that you would know him and nothing can touch it. He will not allow anything or anyone to manipulate or change his heart for you. He supernaturally loves you and he wants you to know it. He wants you to see it. God loves you so much that he has given you a supernatural gift and supernaturally protected that gift so you might know his plans, his desires, his thoughts, and his loves. And if you will read it, if you will give your life to reading this work, this gift from his hands, right? Why should we pursue the word? Because he's given it to us. And if we will give our lives to pursuing it, it will produce flourishing in your life. If you read it and you apply it to your life, if you don't pick at it, say, I like this, but I don't like that, it will produce flourishing in your life. Here's how Jesus says it in the Sermon on the Mount. And at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus concludes his sermon with this. Matthew 7, 24, he says this, Everyone then, everyone who hears or reads these words of mine and does them, actually implements them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came. The winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Christ and his words. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had, listen, authority, not as their scribes. God, the one who holds authority, is teaching you. We're going to talk more about that next, next week. He's teaching you for your good, for your flourishing, because he loves you. He's saying, come on, I have something better for you. Don't eat Red Bull and chicken nuggets and ice cream. Come with me. Let me show you what's better. The world is going to constantly, continually serve you things. But if you pursue the Word of God, you will have the nutrients you need, the house on the rock to endure all the way, and great will be your reward in heaven. You will be great in heaven. For those of us who say, man, I will cling to the Word, and it will supernaturally protect my life now and for all eternity. Friends, here's what I want to call you to. Man, we, I, yes, read your Bible every day. Yes, we're actually going to roll out a scripture reading plan in a few weeks. But before that, before that, I just want to lay the groundwork, okay? Here at Flourishing Grace, we are releasing today a brand new course. And it's all online. You can take it at your own pace whenever you want. You can go to flourishinggrace.org, um, Bible slash Bible course, 
or just on flourishinggrace.org under the Engage tab. You drop down, you'll see Bible Course. And you want to learn more about this stuff. You want to dig, dig deeper than what we said this morning. How do you read your Bible? How, where do I start? Where do I begin? What are all these books? What do they mean? Who are their authors? All of it's in this course, all of it. And so we've compiled a bunch of works from the Bible Project. Paris Darnay has helped us with this and create, crafted this course just for you. You who would say, man, I don't really know where to begin. We have a place for you. So this week, I would challenge you and encourage you to begin the Bible course this week. Flourishinggrace.org, under that little um, Engage tab, Bible course, click on that. You can take it at your own pace. Take it whenever you want. Start this week. Say, man, what is this all about? How do I begin to engage this? And then we're going to roll out a Bible reading plan for us here as a church. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm going to pray for us. Um, And as we do, I'm going to invite our hospitality team to come and bring the bread for communion. We'll talk about communion here in a minute, but I just want to close in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we we praise you. It It is so clear, so evident that your word is a supernatural gift, supernaturally protected, because you want us to know your heart for us. You want to lead us and guide us into flourishing, into abundance, into nearness and intimacy. And so I pray that we would be a people who know why the word is valuable and worthy of our pursuit. And over the next few weeks, I pray that you would teach us and show us and shape us and mold us into a people who do pursue your word and in pursuing it, find you. Would that be true? Would you lead us to yourself through the pursuit of your word? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.